BFA BFA The Fiber Project Finance, Tech and Innovation Presented in collaboration with Quartz Africa Hello and welcome to the Gig Is Up a BFA global podcast on the future of work I'm your host, Damien Milverton In this series, we're going to take you inside the world of BFA Global's Fiber Project which has been working for the past four years to accelerate financial inclusion in emerging markets. We're going to talk to experts in finance, tech and development, explore the day-to-day experience of workers, entrepreneurs and startups in Kenya's capital Nairobi, and give you a bird's eye view of how technology is transforming emerging economies and what the rest of the world can learn from them. The Gig Upgrade The internet and the smartphone are revolutionising the global landscape of work as we know it. The ability to work remotely or find jobs through apps has added an entirely new dimension to the world economy in which young people cut their teeth doing freelance work and even build whole careers out of gig work. In Africa, the job market seems ripe for this kind of tectonic shift in the nature of work. With 200 million people between the ages of 15 and 24, Africa has the largest population of young people in the world. This is called Africa's youth bulge. However, youths aged between 15 and 24 account for 60% of all of Africa's unemployed. Job prospects for them in the future are looking grim. But gig work is a seemingly attractive solution that could put more of these young people to work. It's accessible, flexible, And in some cases, youths are discovering new talents or careers while generating income over platform-enabled work. Here's Anne Gashoka from BFA Global's Kenya office. I do a lot of work with young people, mostly like I think uh, all the East African countries. Youth are really struggling to get employment. So some people keep on applying for jobs more than even like 50, sending 50 job application, but then they are not successful. So after some time, they give up and they decide, you know, like uh, maybe starting to sell things, especially online, they don't need any upfront capital. They don't need to set up like a physical store. For example, here in Kenya, I think even if you have like 10 USD, you're good to go. You can go to a market like Gikomba, buy some few clothes, take photos and, you know, like market them. Instagram. So I think the platforms themselves, they are giving people like an easier way of starting off. To understand the realities of what Africa's young people are facing in the job market, let's go back to Miriam Wambui, an HR consultant in Kenya. So the picture of job employment in Kenya is gloom at the moment. Up to 2018, they said it was 9% unemployment. But there's unemployment and then there's underemployment. When you combine the two, that figure shoots up to close to 35%. Rather than just having diplomas and certificates, that changed into what we currently have, which is what we call the 844 system, which only prepares you for employment into the white-collar jobs. And the only thing that we look at when we are employing these kids from school is whether you have a diploma, whether you have qualifications in accounting or human resource or sales and marketing. But we don't care about what else you can do if you didn't get into formal education. Out of the 16 million Kenyans who are working today, 14 million of those are in informal sector. What we're calling youth in Kenya is anyone 35 and below. So 70% of our population is in that bracket. So you can see how huge and how significant that bracket is. Now, out of those, 
the opportunity growth rate, which means at what rate is this country able to come up with like a job, white collar job at any one time is 3%. So what happens to the 97? And to put a finer point on it, we spoke to some young people who agree with this dark view of their formal job prospects. My name is Wangashi Kinothia. Currently, I am an operations coordinator, but my contract is ending, so I'm job hunting. I am applying for my master's currently in urban development and planning. What I do right now is not in my line of interest. I'm working at Rivers Mall, operating a gaming space, so kind of like a gaming space for kids. But I am definitely underemployed and underpaid wildly. So I do have a lot of hustles on the side. So I bake and I have a line of sandals that I sell. Every day I'm trying to look for something new I can do to make ends meet. Finding a job has been quite difficult, I must say. So I learned to bake from my mom when I was like 12. And then I decided I need a skill that I can do with my hands that doesn't rely on someone else or something else that I can make money doing. So the sandals business was sort of a personal endeavor because I I like wearing sandals anyway. Then I realized that there's sort of a gap between everything in the market is just Maasai sandals or the regular sandals like from China or the Woolworths ones, but there's nothing in between that's kind of unique. And I was just kind of scrolling through like the Discover Feed section and then I was like, oh, these are pretty. And then I went onto the Instagram page and I saw, oh, they have a website. So I went onto that and I was like, why can't I make these here? At the time I didn't have any capital, so I borrowed some from my mom, of course was interest-free, but I still had to pay it back. And um, yeah, that was kind of the process. Hi, my name is Georgia Wandia. I'm an interior and furniture designer. Oh, getting an internship was very hard. You send out so many CVs. Even getting a job in itself is a whole task. And you send out all your CVs and your portfolio and your website link and everything. And yes, you get people who are willing to take you as an intern or take you as an employee, but the problem is the pay is is so low that it can't sustain you. There are more educated young people in Kenya than the formal job market can absorb. Over and over again, we heard that people either couldn't find a formal job or the ones they tried were woefully underpaid and unsatisfying. The statistics reflect these sober truths. In Africa, only 26% of total employment is salaried work, and the continent is faced with negative wage growth. In our Side Hustles episode, we talked about how informal work has long been an integral part of the Kenyan economy, and the goals of the young people today seem to be shifting more toward that path. One of the reasons for this is that the traditional jobs they were told would provide them with a good life simply aren't there. And the reality is, those jobs are scarce in a time when the youth population of Africa is exploding. On super platforms like Facebook and Instagram, young people are able to discover new ways to make money that align with their interests, passions, and talents. These can sometimes be more rewarding than a full-time job, and they provide an opportunity for new entrants to get a foothold in the global market. If they can do that, it might just be the springboard to upward mobility. Digital native careers have a huge number of benefits. They require very little starter capital, they can reach a global or regional market, they can tap into new and often free digital services, and there's innovative technology to launch a venture quickly. We spoke to one young person who is definitely taking advantage of that. My name is Marianne Wangari Mothoni, and I'm currently an architecture student. Actually, I'm like a jack of all trades. I'm engaged in many things. For example, I'm in a 
pig farming business with my uncles. We have a male and a female pig, then they give birth to piglets, then we wait for six months, then when they are big enough, we sell them. I also have an online clothing store. I use Instagram for my clothing business, and it's normally mostly thrift clothes and some new clothes. I have uh, quite a following on Twitter, so it's okay, not, not a big following, like 6K followers. And me and a friend of mine want to start a marketing company. So I've been involved a lot in ex- experiential marketing as a brand ambassador and as a team leader. So I really want to get into that space. What made you want to get into all these things? Yeah. I love money. Agreed. Good. Yeah. <laughs> In Nairobi's central business district, there's a park called Jivanji Gardens. Here you'll see people lounging in the grass, sitting staring at their phones, or gathering around one of the many preachers who take advantage of this ready-made audience. Possibly God is going to locality. The obvious are going to pop in from now. You're going to receive a positive answer. Amen. It's known as the jobless corner, a place where people can come looking for day jobs read flyers for open positions, or sit and wait for word on opportunities. But now, these super platforms are bringing work to people through their phones, so they have an alternative to places like Nairobi's Jobless Corner. I spoke to BFA Global's David Porteous about this new type of employment phenomenon known as iWorkers. The concept of iWorker for us was a category which refers really to people whose livelihoods depend on their digital connectivity. And in most cases, certainly in emerging markets, by digital connectivity, we're talking about having essentially mobile internet, mobile data access. Now, the the reason for creating that category, Damien, is because we saw the need to bridge across two different sets of things that were going on, both of which were important in the kind of markets which concerned us in the fiber project. The one was the rise of the kind of e-commerce platforms like Jumia in Africa that are selling largely goods online. And we've seen more and more merchants participating in platforms like those or platforms which are on-ramps to e-commerce sites like those. And that's one type of iWorker, the person or very small business who's selling goods online. But the term iWork, we apply to a second part of that category as well, which is people who sell services online. And this is really where you get into the categories that are commonly used elsewhere, gig work, side hustles, and so on that people do. And we use the term iWork to cover both. In Africa, we've been struck by seeing the increasingly rapid rise of platforms selling services, platforms like Link in Kenya, for example, that Fiber has worked with, which sells artisanal services through a marketplace type arrangement. And so equally, we would consider the artisans, plumbers, electricians, carpenters on a Link platform, iWorkers, as we would consider the small merchants selling their goods via e-commerce platforms like Jumia. Ultimately, how does iWork differ from traditional work that we've been used to? Is it just the benefits? The benefits, at least on paper, are clear. Some of the disadvantages are getting clearer as well with more and more research. So what are the benefits? First of all, easier 
access into markets because you no longer have to stand by the roadside hoping someone will come by and buy your good or for that matter employ you for the day you have access to a much wider potential marketplace so there's easier access to income generation opportunities that's one benefit a second is flexibility that for people who are on iwork related platforms there's often a lot of flexibility to choose when and how they wish to work things which have not been characteristics of the labor market in many developing countries where there are very difficult working conditions tough working hours things that are not family friendly or friendly for for example women in the workplace so there are a lot of benefits that go with the concept of flexibility but even that damian points us to where we need to be careful a job is a, a cluster of benefits that tends to stabilize the income of the person who has it depending on how much protection and of course they might not be well paid in the job but the point is you at least in theory get your weekly wage or your monthly salary if you're in the job if you're an i worker there's no guarantee of that and so one of the biggest differences is the risk of volatility of income that day to day week to week month to month depending on cycles of demand depending on your health in some cases whether you're able to work your degree of pay would rise or fall and so that volatility can be a substantial disadvantage for people who wish a more stable income profile we spoke to some link pros to hear what they think of i work my name is nzisa waki i'm a massage therapist i've been doing massage therapy for about 5 years now i started working with link in february of this year i worked in a spa so there i got a few clients who were not family or relatives. When I was at the spa, I wasn't making much money because where I was working was like a startup. The owner, who was also a massage therapist, would do more of the work. So unless she's really busy, when she'd be like, "Okay, take that one." But she did most of it. Seeing her, you know, get a lot of clients because she got a lot made me start doing it by myself because I was like being employed by someone. I'll never even get experience, you know. It's just sitting. It's like I'm the receptionist no offense to receptionists but you know i've gone to school and all i'm doing is sitting here booking for you clients i'm not really getting any experience working with link i think for customers they find it easier because maybe link is a company so in case of anything you know you have a place for complaints or whatever then if you're an individual just showing up at somebody's house if i was to take your furniture like you'd never know where to get me you know there's some kind of insurance sort of I got a loan in April of this year from Link for my business to um, buy essential oils, these towels and stuff. So far, I don't feel yet secure yet. I would be happy if I knew, you know, when the month begins, I have a client every day of the month, at least one, at least one. So when you know that you have, because you know, this month you can get five, next you can get two, next you can get twenty. You know, it's not. standard so the time for 20 you'll make some good money but you have to hold on to it because you don't know because the next time you might get 5 you can't really plan for i think i'll save every month 5000 shillings because you don't know how much you get in a month because it's not really stable i think link will help me find that balance because it's been good so far so far so good i was saying i've never heard of a millionaire massage therapist <laughs> i'll be the first one My names are Jonathan Were. I do tiling, terrazzo laying and floor floor sanding. I've been doing that for the last about 10 years. With the link is 2 years. Before I was on link, I found clients through referrals, through social media, 
and through my own marketing. I think Link has uh, has done me good. Uh, it has really saved a lot of time for me because like before I've, I've narrated my situation how I used to get clients but for now you see I don't have to do the the walking around I don't have to do, I even in fact even on, on on Facebook and social media I don't post now whatever I'm doing because somehow Link has done that for me. I was employed. I could see how much money we were making for the organization and how much money we were being paid as employees. So when I made up my mind that I was going to do my own work, what really motivated me is how much money I could make. There is a lot of satisfaction. There is a lot of satisfaction, but there are also challenges. It's not a it's not a walk in the park. Sometimes there are no jobs and you have bills to settle. But sometimes when it comes, you appreciate. Link is there for us. So if there is a client that I will not be able to handle, I will refer back to Link to deal with it. Here's Link co-founder Johannes Degen. Link is a technology platform that works with informal sector workers, right? So we provide job opportunities, gig type jobs, all sorts of different things, right? So in, in lots and lots of different categories of work, but all of it in the blue collar economy, right? The blue collar sector and all of it gig type employment, right? So in Kenya, the vast majority of the population works like this, right? Where they live from hand to mouth, from day to day, right? They don't have consistent work opportunities. They usually do not have a, a work contract, right? So they usually don't have you know, like ongoing uh, labor income, salaries connected with that. They usually don't have health insurance, providing for, you know, like the future savings. These kind of things are very difficult. And that's the space that we operate in, right? So our goal is to work with these informal sector workers, provide them with a consistent income so that they can plan their lives, right? So they can provide for their family in a regular way. They can upskill themselves. They can build and further their career, right? So the more work they do, the better they do it, the more work they should receive, um, and then on the customer side, that obviously has positive effects as well, right? So when customers start trusting working population more, when they know that they will get quality for the money that they spend, then we can hopefully break one of the vicious cycles that currently is uh, is happening in the informal economy in Kenya, which is there's a big distrust between the working population and the people with money, right? Like the businesses or the households that would employ the working population. I think one big thing that has changed in Kenya specifically in the last, um, let's say, two or three years is that the society has digested a lot of different types of technology that makes it possible for companies to start interesting business models. So there's a lot more opportunities now to build startups that target end consumers than there was a couple of years ago. In the next 20 or so years, the gig economy will be a very important part of Kenya's economy, and it, it already is actually. So job growth in the informal sector and in informal labor sector is faster than in the formal labor sector. So when the government publishes its, its employment numbers, it usually emphasizes that there are certain numbers of jobs created, and most of them are actually in the informal sector. In the West, often gig economy platforms are seen as something negative. And I think what is interesting in Kenya is that most workers are working in the gig economy anyways, right? They don't, there's no protection there. Like there's nothing, there's no way for them to, I don't know, there's no, there's no alternative that is better than this, right? So the, the better alternative actually is to provide a platform that is able to provide a framework, right? That is able to deliver some of these safeties and some of these protections while remaining a gig economy platform, while the economy changes to a more formalized economy. Back to David. One of the key questions then when you consider who an eye worker is, is do they become an eye worker by choice or is this by necessity? The answer, of course, is both, as you would expect. What's interesting is about the proportions. So certainly in the field work which the Fiber Project has done in East Africa and in places like Ghana, 
we've come across both sets of people, those who are forced into it because they need to generate an income. That's the traditional and age-old story of the informal sector around the world. But then we've also seen those who've opted in, who've wanted to do this. And if we look at where there are surveys available, for example, the most recent survey freelancing in America, it looks like about 60% of people who are doing what is known here as freelancing, the digital work online, do it by choice. It's a high proportion. Now, many do it as side work, not as their main work, which is the concept we're trying to get at under iWork. But the proportions, it seems, will vary country by country, but are a mixture of both choice and necessity. We figured that one way to get in touch with iWorkers was, well, just log on to one of the apps. Carmen, bless her, ordered pizza for the office for lunch that afternoon. Our Boda Boda driver, delivering in this case for Uber Eats, was kind enough to take a break from his deliveries to answer a few of our prying questions. My name's Daniel Kivuti. I do delivery. Okay, I actually work with Cindy. At the same time, I work with Uber. What made me actually interested is, first of all, I didn't have a job. So having no alternative and the kind of cash that they are telling me they, they earned, so I came to start riding. Typical day actually starts maybe around 8, tends to maybe around 9. On a good day, I actually do 14 deliveries. And this, I've tried a couple of things. I've tried to open a shop, didn't work well. Uh, if doors open, uh, I cannot actually refuse, but as long as responsibility is still waiting for me, I'll still do the delivery. And during one Uber ride in Nairobi, we spoke to a man who was not so happy about this switch to working over a ride-hailing app, an older gentleman who was a taxi driver and now only works on apps like Uber. To make sure I don't cause an accident. Yeah. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will make sure. How long have you been driving? For almost more than two and a half years. How do you like it? Uh, to make money? No, no, not really, not, not really. I, I was operating a normal, a normal tax before, before I started uh, driving Uber. When this digital Ubers came, I had to shift. The normal tax was better than Uber. You cannot compare a normal tax and a Uber tax. Uber company takes a lot of money, 25% of what I get per day. They are the same. I have oil in my phone. I have Uber, I have Taxify, I have Little Cab, I have... Uh, there are many. It is like being forced. You know sometimes you have to do something because you have no alternative. Because if you go back to the other business, it will not uh, work. I know, I, you know, I don't know other business. I have been driving since uh, more than 40 years ago. If I had another business, I could quit Uber. We wanted to know more about the frustrations and the pain points iWorkers come up against when they take on this less formal lifestyle. And specifically, what kind of solutions can make iWork a better long-term career option? Here's Olga Morachinsky, Program Manager at the MasterCard Foundation, which supports Fiverr. One of the things that we do need to figure out is a new type of social safety net. And I do think in this new world of work... Things like benefits are something that the employers have to contribute to, but don't need to be entirely on the hook for. I think workers want to feel heard pretty naturally, right? In a lot of these um, new business models, you are like, you're so separated from the employers that you work for. You might only be able to talk to them or provide feedback through an app. You might never meet people in headquarters. Think about your typical Uber driver. They might come in for training and registration. But then after that, how often do they actually see anyone that works for Uber? 
And it's, it's quite similar for a lot of these other platforms. So when you have a complaint or if you want something to change or suddenly your wage goes down, like who do you speak to, right? And I think a lot of the frustration from workers is that there's been big changes made that affect their livelihoods, affect their pay, their ability to take care of their families. And not only were they given very little warning, but they didn't have a choice. They, they weren't able to negotiate this. You recently published a paper with David Porteous from BFA that looks at emerging ideas to protect gig workers. One of the emerging solutions you pointed to might be what you refer to as portable benefits. Could you explain that concept to us? Yes. So a portable benefit, the reason it's called portable is that it stays with a worker rather than the company that they work for or work with. And it's I think really relevant in the context of non-standard or gig workers, because typically you go through many, many different employers as you're doing contract work. And this is very different to what typical employment looked like maybe 20, 30 years ago, where an individual stayed with one company throughout uh, the majority of their working lives, or maybe went through a handful of companies. And that employer would be responsible for their health and well-being, and they would provide them with a pretty, you know, robust set of benefits from insurance to paid leave to retirement that ensured that the individual throughout their working lives was healthy and and fit to work and fit to live. Now, that's not really the reality anymore. So we need to think through a new type of safety net, a safety net that really makes sense for this new reality of, of work that we have. And this is where, from my side, somebody who works on the digital work and who's concerned about the quality of digital work, I came across the concept of portable benefits. Now, it's still really early days. We haven't seen so many models that have worked so well. There's government is thinking about it and private sector is starting to experiment with it. But there's certainly a lot of room to do something interesting here. The question is where it sits. We said before, there's a lot of different profiles of non-standard workers so there's younger non-standard workers, there's people who are retired, there's people who are working part-time because they're new mothers. Every single one of these individuals needs a different type of safety net, given their financial life working situation. This has to be something that is designed by the worker. So the, the new social safety net, the portable benefits, as it were, may not necessarily fit the same model that we've seen throughout the past couple of hundred years since the Industrial Revolution, which is... Either the government or the employer knows best and sets out the benefits and workers can take them or leave them. What you're really saying is that this could be the true individualization of a benefits approach. Yes, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of room and scope for experimentation around this. I do think it has to be cost shared. It can't be the responsibility anymore of independent workers to fund everything themselves. Um, as they're going from job to job. I mean, that, that's going to cause huge inefficiencies. I mean, you see some of the statistics already in most countries, but especially in North America, around financial stress and levels of, of stress within individuals. And this takes a toll on their productivity, and this takes a toll on their health, and this takes a toll on a number of other things. Over the next few years, as more and more people move into this new type of work, this is just going to get worse. I almost see a bit of a crisis on the horizon. Is there anyone in the United States or even North America more broadly working on the idea of portable benefits in the moment? There are private sector companies that are starting to experiment with this. One company called Trupo, uh, which came out of the Freelancers Union, I believe in New York, is looking at how to offer these types of portable and customized benefits to their freelancers. 
There's one or two other models like this. The majority of them, I think, are selling insurance, which is discounted. Insurance companies have had difficulty targeting this new segment of non-standard gig workers. And I know there's a few startups that are trying to make it a lot easier. One example is Stride in the U.S., uh, Stride Health. I think they've done a great job of kind of aggregating good insurance products and providing them to really anyone who needs health insurance, good health insurance, which of course is critical. But I do think there's the opportunity and the scope for platforms that address broader financial health, but also offer the ability to save for retirement, the ability to put money away for paid leave, but also to have employers contribute. And in terms of government, I think the government could be more effectively positioned to to help define these categories of workers and really supporting private sector to innovate around these new models of providing benefits. Back to David. Fiber started with a focus on financial inclusion quite narrowly. But it did have this overriding interest in what would be the pull factors which would create a reason why people would want to be financially included, different from the push factors. You need to have an account because I'm the government or whoever and I'm requiring you to have one to be paid out. So for me, as I've thought about that over the years, it's become clearer that the pull factors, these reasons why you would want an account matter, more and more. And for most people in the world, certainly in the developing world, that has to do with generating an income, a better income if you already have one, an income if you don't have one. And so in many ways for fiber, our getting into this thinking about the future of work has come from looking at what are the strongest pull factors which really get people not only earning an income, but now wanting to be digitally financially included to use that income, to save from that income and so on. And for a final perspective, here's Jane Del Sur, the Deputy Director of Fibre Project. Fibre has found that the future of work around the world is changing. In many ways, from what we see in the developing world, it's no longer a binary setup. You're not formally or informally employed. There's actually a wide spectrum of employment scenarios of which you may be somewhat informally employed or seeking formal employment, but the only opportunities available to you are informal. It's also very possible for that future of work to create situations where most workers are earning low wages, are low skilled, and don't really have pathways to develop. So we call the podcast The Gig is Up because we believe that the gig economy and the platforms behind it can actually act as an upward force for creating positive employment opportunities now and in the future. I do think that platforms have a role to play in making the gig economy a much more beneficial and safe place for workers, gig workers, to earn a living. And if they don't act now, I think we will see that the gig is up, that there really won't be a sustainable way of managing large tech platforms whose businesses are based on large bodies of gig workers. So we hope the gig isn't up. As we look to the future of work in Africa, there are still a lot of questions to be answered. Will iWork contribute to improved livelihoods across the continent? Will it advance financial inclusion and actually lead to better outcomes in people's lives? Is it sustainable? And who is ultimately responsible for protecting eye workers and advancing their growth. But as we've heard in this podcast, there are tensions already evident, particularly among the gig workers and emerging eye workers who aren't seeing the benefits they'd hoped for. 
Fibre's work suggests that enlightened employers, super platforms and policymakers, aided by new technologies, have a chance to ensure that these genuine gripes are only the adolescent growing pains for iWorkers and aren't the signs of a backlash or a revolt among these pioneers in the new economy. What is certain is that the landscape of work as we know it is changing and that gig work can be good work. The Gig Is Up was brought to you by BFA Global, using finance, technology and data to craft solutions that empower individuals, organisations and communities to create a more sustainable and equitable world. Special thanks to Mastercard Foundation, Quartz, Jumia, Sendy, The Fibre Partners and individuals who were interviewed for the podcast. For more information about Fibre, go to www.bfa.works/fibr. Podcast production by Jessamine Molly and Justin D. Wright of Seaplane Armada. Recorded in Paris, France at L'Arrière Boutique Studio. I'm Damien Milverton. Thanks for joining.